Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I cannot tell you how excited I am about today's podcast. I've always wanted to tape a podcast episode about not just healthcare entrepreneurship, but about really career path in healthcare beyond just the provider side and really trying to understand a lot of things that goes on the investment side, uh, venture capitalist. And uh, I got the opportunity to be introduced to Lee Shapiro, who is the managing, managing partner at Seven Wire Ventures. And he has graciously agreed to tape a podcast episode with me where we talk about Uh, venture capitalism, investments into healthcare, current uh, healthcare ecosystem, and the future of healthcare. What are we looking forward to? How do we take a company into uh, the IPO market? All of these things. And we also talk about PBMs, by the way, which I know some of you feel strongly about, including myself. But uh, I'm really very excited to host Lee Shapiro. Lee Shapiro is a managing partner at Seven Wire Ventures, which is an investment firm. He actually co-founded this investment firm over a decade ago. At some point, Lee was a chief financial officer at Livongo Health, and uh, they actually um, uh, were uh, acquired, I believe. Uh, if not, Lee will correct me. Uh, and they, they, they actually went uh, public. Prior to that, he was president at, of all scripts from 2001 until the end of 2012. Um, really, uh, it's, it's just an amazing, amazing understanding of the healthcare uh, system and, and knowledge of what's actually going on there. He is a lawyer by training. He actually practiced commercial law at Barack, Ferrazano, Kirschbaum, Perlman, and Nigelberg, which is a prominent Chicago law firm. His JD comes from the University of Chicago Law School, and he has a, a, a Bachelor of Science in Accounting from the University of Illinois. Uh, I'm very fortunate to spend this hour with Lee Shapiro learning from him about healthcare entrepreneurship, healthcare, being a healthcare executive, and what the future holds. I promise you that you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed taping it. Before I air the episode that I taped with Lee Shapiro, I would like to make sure that you plug the show by referring friends and colleagues to it. Make sure you tell them about Healthcare Unfiltered. And also, if you are an avid listener, you need to direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, where I could send you the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt. It is just unbelievable. The best t-shirt in business. And uh, uh, make sure you plug, uh, log into my website, www.chadinabhan.com. You can also get into uh, my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and watch all of these uh, episodes um, that we actually uh, uh, talked about. So, you know, you can uh, rate the show uh, and subscribe to the show, refer friends and colleagues to the show. Without further ado... Lee Shapiro, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered.
Well, folks, I, I can't tell you how excited I am today. Uh, you know, you've, you've listened to me for, for a while, and you know I don't get intimidated very easily, but I'll admit I'm a little bit nervous, slightly intimidated by my uh, guest on today's podcast because um, he has done so much in healthcare that uh, pretty much uh, any host would be a little bit nervous to bring him on the show. But he's humble that he's joining me today, and we're going to talk about uh, his journey throughout healthcare entrepreneurship, and really what's going on right now when we think about healthcare in general and, and patients uh, and, and the impact on patients. Um, Lee uh, Shapiro is with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. Uh, Lee, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time and taping this with me. We're taping on Memorial Day weekend, which says something about both of us, right? Either we are uh, so uh, busy in other times that we have a holiday to tape or we've got no plans on a nice holiday weekend where everybody else has a nice life. What's going on with us? Well, I wondered who you were talking about for a little while. So I was pleased that actually it's me that's on your show, Kadi. And um, because I'm banned from most golf courses around the country, um, my Sunday mornings are free. So I'm glad to do this with you. And thank you for hosting me. I've enjoyed um, listening to some of your podcasts in preparation for today. Well, thank you so much. And um Lee, what I wanted to do is I wanted to start um, by just going through your your career, because frankly, going through your career over the past couple of decades will probably allow us to understand what's going on in healthcare. I mean, you've lived it all, you've seen it all, um, and I think that's probably uh, a nice start. So tell us a little bit what got you into healthcare, because at least in my reading, you went to law school and you have a law degree, but somehow you pivoted into healthcare. How did that take place? Well, uh, you and I share a little bit of, of uh, common heritage, uh, both of us at University of Chicago, where I graduated from law school and, and where you also had trained. And um, and practicing law, I found that I really loved giving advice to clients, but they were making the business decisions and taking risk. And so after a few number of years, I ended up going into business with a client because it was much more fun to ask the lawyers for advice and then to make the decisions than it was just to give the advice. And, and during those years, I started investing. Um, in fact, for now, 30 some odd years, I've been investing with my longtime business partner, Glenn Tolman. And we started with an idea that you could use technology to address broken business process. We've always been very early stage investors and some of the companies that we invested in were ones that were focused on things like helping charitable organizations manage their donors and build out a donor relationship management platform in these very early days or helping people understand their travel needs. And we had a company that was in the travel and travel marketing space and uh, another that was working on um, other solutions that would help individuals address kind of common problems that you could use to address with technology. But when we came to healthcare, we realized that there was enough broken business process to last us a lifetime. And so we started investing full-time in healthcare. Yeah. So basically what you're telling me is that uh, our broken system is a good job security. That's what you're saying. It's uh, an investor's paradise because there's <laughs> a lot of things to solve. It's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. When you decide on investing, I mean, so you have just like for listeners who don't understand what that means, 
What goes into evaluating a company? Um, I mean, how much do you spend time getting to know the company, the leaders? How much do you decide I want to put five dollars or five hundred or five hundred thousand? Like, how do you how do you go through the approach into analyzing a company and deciding you wanna you wanna you're actually gonna put some money into this? So we are very early stage investors. Um, as I mentioned, we're seed and Series A. And so many of the times that we invest, someone has an idea, something that they're passionate about, um, but it may not actually be a company yet. And we've been involved with a number of early stage startups that will help grow over a period of time. And we have a long-term focus because when you're investing early stage, it's not like it's going to be a home run overnight. Um, even some of the great companies that we've invested in took a long time before they achieved some of their potential. So it does come down first and foremost to who's the founder or the founding team. And we try to spend a lot of time with them. And we look for qualities about them. What's their level of passion? Did they have a lived experience that drove them to start the company? Um, are they resilient? Because when you're starting a company, um, it's sometimes two steps forward and one step back, sometimes three or four steps back, and then you have to start again. And so how is their ability to deal with some of the rejection that occurs? Because many times you're knocking on doors and getting a lot of no's when you're starting a company. What's their ability to pivot, uh, to make decisions about um, what to do with the business as you're starting to get a better sense of how the market is evolving and what the customers might need? And we look for people with a high degree of integrity. That's really important to us because we want to make sure that the people we're associating with share many of the values that we have about the reasons why we're doing the things we're doing. Um, there's a longstanding kind of um, story about our company. When we look at decks, people will come in and have a presentation and they'll have a page in there that says, um, here's who will buy us. It might be United Healthcare or it might be CVS Aetna. And we'll see that page and we'll take it and we'll tear it out mm -hmm. and we'll rip it up in front of them. And it's not just for dramatic flair. It's because we want them to focus on building a great company. If you do that, then good things will happen and you'll have a lot of optionality. Some of the companies that we've invested in still exist today in, in various sizes and shapes. Um, and have gone on to build great careers for many people and serve a lot of consumers and help them in meaningful ways. And we want to find founders that are focused on, on building those opportunities. So that's the first area, primary focus. The second is with our fund, because we're really looking at solving challenges that we all face as consumers of healthcare, we look for meaningful problems in the market. Um, if it's another wearable, um, I have my, my wearable that, you know, I use uh, every day, um, you know, that's great, but that's going to help kind of the weekend warriors, but what kind of health problems is going to solve? So wearable, that's also addressing a meaningful health challenge. How do you get data from people who might need some help and then get them the help they need? Those are the types of things we look at in big markets. Um, you might recall that many years ago, GE had this philosophy that unless they could be number one or number two in a business, they wouldn't go into it. And 
in the markets that we serve, healthcare is a three and a half, four trillion dollar industry just in the U.S. and even larger on a global basis. And so when we look at it, we say if there's only room for one or two companies, then we won't invest because we want to be in a place where you can still grow a really large company, but where there's room for competition. Competition makes you better. And so we may not always pick you know, that unique company with a unique solution that's going to address and take the whole market for themselves, but we might be participating in a really large market where we have a great solution that people love to use. And if that's the case, then you can deliver value. Uh, you know, you'll have to remind me after after we finish this, I got to tell you, I'm going to pitch an idea to you in five minutes, but I can't put it on the air. But what I learned from you is a couple of things. And I really think it's important. You invest in people. You really, I, I love that, uh, Lee, what you said. You really look at the people that you are going to invest with um, and the integrity and who they are. I, I loved hearing that. And the other thing I loved when you said you tear that page apart uh, is you're telling people, you know what, don't focus on the exit strategy now. Focus on the entry strategy, like focus on actually building the company, and then we'll worry about the exit strategy. The exit strategy will evolve organically. I love that. Love that. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's also, I think, part of an approach that we take with regard to the businesses that we work with. Um, we've had opportunities to raise really large funds, you know, in the billions of dollars if we wanted to pursue that. We've deliberately chosen to keep our fund sizes small and our team is small. There's four of us who are partners in our fund and we're fortunate to have some great operating partners as well who join us on this journey. But we really spend a lot of time with the CEOs and, and the leadership teams of the companies that we work with because we feel that by working with them, understanding their strategy, helping them to address problems, whether they're recruiting, whether it's management issues, whether it's product-related issues, customer issues, go-to-market challenges. Um, those are things that we've addressed in our career. And all the gray hair that, that we have, we've earned um, through solving some of those problems ourselves. So our founders don't necessarily need to do things the way we did them in order to be successful. That's not the, the path forward, but it's about learning from what existed at a certain point in time and assessing that, digesting it, and then using that to make decisions about what might be the best path forward under these circumstances today. Because markets are very different from time to time, and certainly we've seen things shift even uh, over the course of the last year and a half. What do you say aside from the, um, you know, I mean, I think in, in, your, in your role currently, uh, it's fair to say that uh, folks reach out to you and they have a pitch deck and they schedule a time and either on Zoom or in person, and you give them an hour and say, okay, pitch the idea to me. Like, do you take all of these calls? What's the pre-pitch pre look like? Do you say, okay, you know what? I've learned enough about this before I even, I don't need to meet with these guys. I have better things to do. And maybe take us through the common flaws of these startups and they're trying to pitch. Because I could imagine somebody with your expertise I could either capture your attention in the first five to 10 minutes, or I've lost you and I can speak for the next hour. And I'm not going to get your attention back. I kind of feel, and maybe I'm wrong, but I kind of feel the first five to 10 minutes when I'm sitting with you to tell you my idea are the most important. Either I get you interested or I've lost you and I can't get you back. 
Well, my, my partner, David Schoenthal, um, talks about the importance of storytelling, and, and he actually teaches a course in this um, at, at Northwestern Kellogg. And this is true for whatever it is you're selling. I think you need to be able to capture the attention of whoever it is you're trying to build a partnership with or sell something to um, in, that, in, in that early place. But we try to make it very clear to founders early on the types of things we're interested in. We don't invest in standalone medical device. We're not biotech or life sciences investors. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're trying to build better informed and connected health consumers. And so an offering that might improve the delivery of care inside the four walls of a hospital or a doctor's office, we've done companies like that in our past, enterprise systems, all scripts, but we're now focusing on the consumer side of the healthcare journey. It still may be an offering that's paid for by a health plan, a nat risk provider group, or a self-insured employer. But the parameters that we set early on with founders is to make sure that they understand that, that we are looking at a very narrow slice of what might be broadly thought of as use of technologies in healthcare. Even if it's something, though, that doesn't fall squarely within our thesis, we still take a lot of meetings. We meet a lot of founders because... Today's company might not be one that we'd be interested in, but we like meeting people, especially smart, energetic people who are building things. And maybe their next company will be one that would make sense for us. And if we can be helpful to them, uh, we try to pay it forward. And if we can introduce them to other investors who might be a better fit for what, we're, what they're doing, we try to do that as well. So we tend to take meetings, even if the offering is not one that fits squarely within our thesis, but we try to let people know that in advance. Look, this might not be for us, but we're happy to still have a conversation and see if we can help you. Um, I think founders appreciate getting to a quick no, um, as well as a longer yes, because if it is a yes, as I mentioned, we spend a lot of time getting to know the people and the company. Oh, absolutely. And then on, an, on average, I mean, on average, how many pitches do you get a month? So we'll see somewhere between 2,200 and 2,500 companies a year. So when you think about that, um, we're meeting with a lot of companies uh, all day, every day. Um, that's great. It keeps us fresh. There's always really interesting things that we see and companies that may be too early where we want to see a little bit more proof of concept before we get involved. Other companies that may be later stage, and, and as I mentioned, we're early stage investors where it may not be the right fit for us, just because the level of effort we put into the company really requires that we take a meaningfully sized ownership stake, write a meaningful check for the company at that early stage. But if they're already a company that has raised a couple of hundred million dollars and they have in the 50, 60 million dollars of revenue range, they're already larger than where we could invest and have a, an ownership stake that would allow us to justify the time that we would have to invest in the business. So oftentimes we, sh we, we um, shy away from those as well. Uh, I do think that, that with the companies that, that we're meeting um, as a whole, the, the goal is for us to make sure that anytime someone speaks with us, they hopefully leave with some piece of advice that's useful for them. And that's something that all of our teammates are, are endeavoring to do each and every call that we have. 
I, I, I got to tell you, I am flabbergasted by the number that you shared with me. 2,000 to 2,500. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, it's, it's great. It tells me probably, um, you know, the market is healthy, I guess. There's entrepreneurship. There are ideas. There are people who are really thinking. I think it's, I did not expect that number, to be honest. So that, that's amazing. It's really amazing. Well, well, the market, I mean, we had a record set last year in terms of the amount of, of capital invested into digital health, broadly speaking. Um, there was more invested in 2021 than 2020 and, and 2019 combined. And each of those years were records. This year, in light of some of the economic challenges that have existed and the public market fall off, broadly speaking, we'll see less money invested in the space, but it will still be very strong. And we've been doing this, as I mentioned, for a long time. Um, before there was something called digital health, we were investing in the space. And, and in those years, it was a couple of billion dollars that was being invested in the sector. And last year was well over 30. So you can see there's a lot of attention being given because there's an understanding that um, healthcare is delivered in places other than a hospital bed or an exam room in a physician office. Um, health is everywhere we are. Uh, that's what we all strive for. And so the ability to deliver care everywhere requires the use of technologies that are spurring a lot of this innovation. Amazing. Lee, when, when you see, I mean, you see a lot of these companies and so on, and maybe you'll be able to share some of this. Maybe you won't. I don't know. So, so you'll tell me. But I'm, I'm curious, do you ever look back and you say you passed on investing in something and like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did not see it. And they went up to be the next Microsoft or Google or whoever it is. And vice versa, like you dodged a bullet. You're like, okay, well, I'm glad I invested in this because they were just dog. I mean, just did not really work. And I say that because as somebody who sometimes invests in the market and buys stocks, you're like, oh my God, I can't, I, I should have bought that stock and it just went up or vice versa. Do you, do you, do you keep following up on the opportunities you either passed on or continue to do this? And do you ever go back and realize that, you know, you've done your best, but you did not see how good that company was going to be and you missed an opportunity? Absolutely. Um, and, and you learn a lot from that. And we continue to follow companies that we don't invest in um, and track their progress over time. In, in our fund um, and, or our funds, we might only do a dozen or so companies per fund. And so just by virtue of the, the fact that we have to select a limited number of companies that we invest in, we miss companies all the time. And as I mentioned, we look at big markets. And so because of that, there will be some large players in the market that will develop over time that may become even larger than some of the companies we chose in the space, or it may be a, a space that we chose not to get into. There are companies, I'll give you know, one example of a company that we spoke to early on. Um, it was called PillPack, um, and it sold for over a billion dollars to Amazon. And we love the team. There are some great people that are involved there. We like the idea. We had been involved during our years at Allscripts with medication therapy management. So we understood some things about the space. What we didn't appreciate is how slowly the incumbents would react to someone who was coming into the space and making it easier for people to get their prescriptions delivered at home than what mail order pharmacy does. And as you may know, mail order pharmacy penetration is still relatively low, even though it's 
convenient and in many cases less expensive for people. But PillPack just created a far better consumer experience. And so that's an example of a company that we thought was great, but might be one that had a short runway as the incumbents um, adapted to what they saw in the market. And lo and behold, they didn't adapt and PillPack went on to become part of what is now going to be a very meaningful set of offerings from Amazon um, to address healthcare needs. That's really, thank you for sharing this because I think we all obviously uh, sometimes miss on opportunities and so on. That's very, very helpful. So, so, but before you started doing this, you mentioned all scripts a few times. I want to just talk a little bit about that because you spent a lot of time, I believe there. And, and, and then you also were part of taking a company IPO as well. So, um, so, so th this was, were you doing this at the same time as you were with Allscripts and Livingo and so on? Or tell me, tell me a little bit about that. So at least listeners can know how, how you were involved in Allscripts and, and how they Sure, go. sure. I'm, ha I'm happy to. So, you know, our pace of investing um, was not as, um, as broad as it is today um, in those, those early years. And, in the mid '90s, um, I became an investor in Allscripts. Uh, the company was pre-IPO. Um, at the time that we invested, uh, both Glenn and I, the company was a pharmacy benefit manager, so it owned a PBM. Uh, they also had an FDA-regulated medication repackaging facility where they would ship medications to doctor's offices and doctors would dispense them at the point of care. And you may know this, I'm not sure that your listeners know that physicians are actually able to in 48 states dispense medications at the point of care. Um, that's something that pharmacy lobbies didn't like very much, but doctors were able to do it. And oftentimes you would see that happening in um, free clinics. Um, so we served a number of state clinics or city clinics, but also it started growing into physician offices as well. Um, but when we were investing, we were investing usually one or a couple of companies at a time, but really not doing it as a fund and doing it through special purpose vehicles that were directed towards a particular investment. Um, All scripts went public in 1999, um, and I ended up joining full-time shortly after they went public uh, within the first year. Um, and we stayed um, involved with Allscripts from the time we first invested until we exited at the end of 2012, middle of 2013 for close to 15 years. While we were there, we were still investing in other companies with the knowledge and uh, permission, in some cases, even with co-investments by some of the other board members. Um, and we also did a lot of investing off the Allscripts balance sheet because we were buying a number of companies, some great companies that we had acquired over the years, some $3 billion um, in mergers and acquisitions uh, that we had done during the tenure uh, that we were involved with the company. Subsequent to all scripts, we were investing full-time, but we'd still take operating roles in businesses, uh, which led to, you had mentioned Livongo, um, and Glenn became CEO a couple of years after we invested he stepped down as CEO a few years after becoming involved as CEO. Zane Burke came in to be CEO. I joined as CFO in 2018, helped take the company public, and then um, stepped down after we merged with Teladoc. 
So we can dig into any more of those details that you'd like, but that's a very quick overview of what happened from the mid nineties until the end of 2020. Yeah, well, we'll dig in a couple of things I think are, are relevant. And I've always tried to tailor this into what I know my listeners are will be interested in. Maybe a couple of things about the PBMs, because you've obviously been involved in this. They don't get the best rap out there. I think there's a lot of, you know, um, I would say um, folks who would argue that PBMs conceptually were created to lower cost of drugs on patients, but they have not really lived up to their expectations. Um, and I think there are many out there who would argue that PBMs have really profited, but the patient's cost has not really gone down significantly. I'd like to hear from you as someone who was involved in this, what your answer to that, do you agree with it? Is there, is there some misconception into that? And the second thing I will uh, uh, dig into, um, uh, in taking company IPO, how do you assess timing? Because I, I'm a firm believer, timing is everything. And sometimes you could take the company public in January and you really make great money. And had you done it two months earlier, you probably would have not uh, uh, re recouped your cost. These are the two things I'd like to highlight. Uh, sure, sure. So very briefly on, on the PBM side, I don't want to overstate my qualifications. Um, shortly after joining Allscripts, it was like we were burning the boats and staying on the island. The PBM was the only profitable part of the business, and we sold it to focus on other aspects. I, I do think that pharmacy benefit managers um, provide a valuable service in terms of helping to structure formulary, helping to manage uh, the types of medications that people are on, I'm looking to try and find opportunities to direct them to more efficacious and cost-effective medications. Um, in some circumstances, I think that the administrative costs that they add to the price of drugs are, are very high. And one of the things that I know Congress has looked at, as well as others in the industry, um, is the nature of the rebates uh, that are passed back to pharmacy benefit managers. And then sometimes they then pass that back to their clients that are coming from life sciences companies. Um, there's a number of very interesting companies that are coming to market, looking at ways to change that business model, um, whether that's a more transparent approach towards, towards pharmacy benefit, um, either not taking rebates and, and doing a, a gross versus a net type of pricing, um, or whether they're looking at ways to help provide a direct relationships between life sciences companies and some of the users of those medications. So we'll continue to see um, very interesting entrants uh, into the market. I mentioned PillPack earlier. There are others who have come in with more direct consumer offerings like Hims and Hers and Roe, Capsule. Um, but there are also ones that are working uh, with some of the other payers, whether those are health plans and self-insured employers that are also looking at ways to disrupt that market. And we'll continue to see, I think, some benefits for all of us as buyers of medications that come from that competition that's that's coming forward. No, thanks a lot, Lee, for, for that. And tell me about the timing for uh, when you're taking, I mean, as the CFO, you were like, you know, you're the most important person, I think, in deciding on the IPO, right? I mean, you're... Well, no, no, there was, there was a great team, not only, <laughs> you know, the others, Glenn and Dr. Jennifer Schneider, Zane Burke, who I mentioned, 
but also the whole finance team that was there with us at Livongo that played a big role in that. Um, look, the, the best day that you go public uh, is the day you go public. Um, and so from there on, you're really looking at that the market is going to dictate what occurs. Um, I think it's very hard to time the market. The market will tell you um, what the price of your stock might be at any given point in time. And, and you can make a determination as to whether or not uh, that's the right time to go public or not. Great companies can always find ways to raise capital, even in markets that are sloppy or down. Um, in, in our situation with Livongo, um, we had been building a very strong recurring revenue model. So we had predictability of our earnings streams. That's important because you want to be able to give some confidence to your investors that the predictions that they're able to make of how the company will perform are ones that are sound. Um, and it was 2019. Um, we, of course, couldn't ever uh, foresee that the pandemic was going to occur in 2020, but we knew that 2020 was an election year. And we thought that the market might get a little sloppy trying to do a public offering in 2020. So we worked hard to try and be ready in 2019 to do so. And, and that's part of the reason why we had timed the market to come out then, um, as opposed to waiting a little bit longer before we went public. Um, right now, um, the IPO market is pretty slow in light of the fact that there's so much turmoil. We have a um, global conflict going on. There's still the remnants of the pandemic. Um, the stock market has maybe not found bottom yet. And, and yet you'll still see some IPOs getting done of companies or some large transactions that are occurring. Um, so I think that the market will, as we've kind of hit this trough, will come back over the course of the next two years or so. And, and as that happens, you'll start to see more IPOs getting priced and companies going public. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's, it's totally shut off right now. Good companies can always raise capital. You know, and you mentioned the pandemic, Lee. Is it, um, I, I mean, I, I'm surprised that despite the pandemic, you had almost a record year. I believe you said 2020 or 2021 with the 2,500 and so on. Was that to be expected during a pandemic and a lot of what's going on? Would you have expected things to slow down for you? You know, as we were kind of in March and April of 2020, um, everyone had so much uncertainty in terms of what was occurring. For us in particular, because we're focused on digital health, um, the market really seemed to accelerate. And, and you saw that with a number of companies that were already publicly traded and then some of the transactions that took place, like the merger between Livongo and Teladoc. And, and there became this appreciation that with the unavailability of in-person office visits, I mean, telehealth went from, I think there were in 2019, I was just reading a study about this. I have the, the numbers here for a talk that I'm giving uh, later in the week. Um, but for the period from February of 2019 until March of 2020, Medicare claims for telehealth visits were only 900,000. And in the period one year later, so from March of 2020 to March of 2021, 27 million visits. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you could see the, the increase in use of that as one modality. But when you think about other ways in which remote care was being delivered, the increase in use of remote patient monitoring. And 
as I like to say, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's really hard to get back in. Um, and, and so consumers found some of those experiences to be better for them than driving to an office, waiting in a waiting room, waiting in an exam room, and seeing a provider for 10 minutes for things that could be done that way. There's always going to be a need for the laying of hands, something that physicians are great at, but there are also a number of things that can be done remotely. Um, Hadi, there's a limited number of things you could diagnose about me from this visit, but if you did have the ability to monitor my biometrics, um, you might be able to then understand what medications I'm on. There's probably some things that you could do very well for me remotely, just as well as if I was in the office. And so that was part of this impetus that I think created so much investment and so many new opportunities for us to look at uh, during the course of the last couple of years. No question. And I'll share with you an article I wrote about this uh, on my dad's experience with the virtual visit. I'll, I'll send it to you later. Please. But, um, but uh, um, one, one thing that comes to mind, and I think maybe some listeners are thinking about this, is um, look, you know healthcare like no one else, and you have other people that you work with and your partners, you understand healthcare in general. So when you look at the healthcare system or the ecosystem, why not you instead of investing in companies and be in the on the recipient end getting pitched to of companies and decide to invest in why not just you go and and solve two or three problems by creating the uh, a platform or a company that that would do that i mean you clearly have the capital to do so help me understand the mindset of a of a venture capital um firm uh, where you are investing in various companies, but you could build your own company and just go after a particular area in healthcare that you want to solve if you felt strongly about it. No, am I missing something? Well, no, you're not missing something. And, and one of the things that set Sevenware Ventures apart from maybe other funds is that um, we didn't come to building out our fund as financial engineers. Uh, many individuals who are in the venture capital business had been at private equity firms or at hedge funds, and then they've raised money from investors and they know how to do financial structuring and they look to find kind of an opportunity to buy low and sell high. Um, they'll fund money into a company and they'll get their board reports and they'll show up every quarter for board meetings and, and they look to try and find ways to maybe help that company get additional capital and grow. For us, as I mentioned early on in, your, uh, in our conversation, um, we're operators at heart. And so we have started companies out of the fund. Each of our funds, we've started two, in some cases, three companies out of the fund. Um, one of those uh, was Livongo, where we made an investment in an interesting technology. And we used that as the core to build out a services business to help people with chronic conditions live better and healthier lives. Um, one of our newest offerings that is just coming out of the ground, so to speak, um, is focused on helping uh, women, uh, Gen Z women in particular, uh, 18 to 27 year olds, um, to understand their health better um, in an integrated care framework for mental and physical health, because we don't think you can separate those and making it more accessible and available to them than what they're able to find today. Uh, we've done one in senior care. Um, even the work that we've been doing with Redesign Health, which is an incubator 
um, very early stage kind of creative starting of companies. Uh, we've partnered with them at an early stage in Jasper Health, which is in the oncology space. So we get involved early. Um, in some cases, we research the idea. We then find a team to build it with us. That's what we've done with Caraway Health and, and Women's Health or Home Thrive and Senior Care. Um, and then in other cases, uh, we'll work with partners to do that. Yeah, to share with me just a few things that you've learned during the pandemic. And I, we talked about the digital health and so on. And I'm, you know, you mentioned about mental health and I, I'm, I, I actually do feel that um, certain elements may have affected kids specifically with school closures and so on and so on. Is this something that you, this is not really healthcare, obviously, but is this something that, but there's some mental health component to it. Is this something that you've tried to get into children, mental health and pandemic and try to provide a platform or this is out of scope? So um, we do have companies, first of all, as I mentioned, I don't think that you can separate mental and physical health. Um, we learned, for example, in our experience with individuals with diabetes, uh, we were helping a number of people who had type 2 diabetes, and they were overweight. But you have to peel the onion back a bit further and understand, well, what's causing some of the reasons why they might be overeating? And we had acquired a company called MyStrength that had some behavioral health tools to understand whether there's underlying depression, anxiety, or other causes that might be leading to why someone was coming home at night, drinking a six pack and eating a bag of Doritos. Um, and likewise, in other areas, we've carried that forward. One of the companies that we're quite excited about is called Brightline Health, a great founder, Naomi Allen, who worked with us at Livongo and, and we knew from previously, um, is helping families work with children who have special needs. Um, and that may be whether it's on the autism spectrum or whether they have ADHD or behavioral health challenges at home. And so we work with the family caregivers as well as the children to help improve their condition. Uh, the other I'd mention is called NOCD or NOCD, a company that's headquartered in Chicago, not far from you, um, that's been working with people with obsessive compulsive disorder um, as well as major depressive disorders um, to help them understand what it is they're experiencing, to help them get diagnosed more quickly. Typical OCD diagnosis might take someone over seven years and then give them resources anywhere from coaching and peer counseling to virtual appointments or in-person appointments if that's necessary um, to help them address their challenges and then provide them with digital tools that allow them to stay on track and on course with their lives. I think the pandemic has shown us that use of virtual tools has made mental health services more accessible and more available to more people. And, and that's been um, one of the dividends that's come out of something that otherwise has been so challenging. And I know that I don't, I don't wanna take a lot of your time, it is Sunday after all, but I do have a couple of questions I wanna make sure I get into before the top of the hour. But one of them I was gonna ask you, why don't you buy Twitter? You get Elon Musk to buy Twitter. I mean, I mean, Lee, you could do something there, right? I, I think you've pointed out an example of where uh, virtual mental health could be helpful. Really, my, my question is along the lines of a futuristic uh, look at healthcare. I think you highlighted just by giving me the numbers of the virtual visits of Medicare, that 
if, you know, we talked about digital health forever, but nobody expected it's going to, you know, take off that much because nobody predicted the pandemic is going to happen. So I would uh, maybe say currently digital health is the uh, what's happening in healthcare. What is the next big thing in healthcare, in your opinion? Five years from now, what is really the next big thing? It's not going to be digital health. I think we're going to be past that particular era, I will. What do you predict is going to happen? Well, we've, I wrote an article recently saying digital health is dead, long live health. Um, when you bank um, and you're doing transactions on your phone, or you might be remote from a bank at an ATM machine, you don't think of it as digital banking. It's just banking. And when you're doing your shopping, uh, whether on Amazon or other services, and you're shopping online, you think of it as shopping. You're buying things that you need. You can do it from anywhere. And you don't necessarily have to do it in a store any longer. Um, we live 24 by 7. Um, and unless you're fortunate to be married to a doctor like you, you don't get medical advice 24 by 7. But you need to get other tools and services to help you, you guide uh, your needs. I think that five years from now, we'll continue to see what I call this shift left. Everything in healthcare seems always to move up to the right. It's more costly, it's more expensive, it's more intensive, but we're finding that there's real benefits in terms of being able to deliver care closer to where the consumer is. There are companies that have started what are called hospital at home, and we're finding that Maybe you have a surgery, you can be discharged into the home more quickly. You can reduce length of stay and provide more throughput for the hospital, but get people home where they have lower risk of infection. And because they're at home and in familiar surroundings, they can sleep better and recover more quickly. We can use tools like those provided by BioIntellisense, a, a patch that you can wear, another company we invested in, that reduces the needs for nurses to round in order to collect vital signs so that patients can get better sleep, whether they're in the hospital or at home. And those, those, that data can go to the cloud where it can be analyzed. So I see the ability for us to reduce, uh, McKinsey had mentioned that, that we can probably take $250 billion of waste out of our healthcare system and be able to use these digital tools to provide better care at lower cost and I hope that we're well on our way to making a dent in terms of that type of cost savings as we get five years from now. So uh, more of a personal question. Do you, how do you think of life-work uh, balance? You seem like you're busy 26 hours out of a day. Do you feel, and clearly your golf game needs improvement. So uh, do you, how do you, uh, do you, do you balance life and work? Do you feel that in a role like yours, highly visible as an executive and so on, you're able to chill, shut down and completely, how, how important is that? And are you able to do it? I'm, I'm the luckiest person alive because, and I, I feel like um, maybe some athletes feel when you do what you love, it's not work. And we love building companies. And so we spend our time doing the things that we enjoy doing. So I get energized by that. I get enjoyment and pleasure from it. I'm fortunate to have a wonderful wife and three great kids, and I get to spend time with them. But they don't necessarily always want to spend the time with me. They need their, you know, they need their time as well. My my kids are adults now, um, and so 
you know, we, we spend our time doing things that we love doing and, and to be able to be on a journey to do it with people you love doing it with my, my partners, Glenn and Robert and Alyssa and David and Ted and our team, Tunde and Rachel and Megan and Angie, I can go on and on and, and, and Alex and I'm just, you know, great interns that we have in our organization. They make all this worthwhile. And so I'm really excited about the prospects of waking up every day. And we feel like we're in a race um, to hopefully find ways to um, help people and, and do some good in the world. And I think that um, what we're doing in terms of our investments is hopefully doing well by doing good um, and companies that are making a difference in people's lives. Lee, is there anything I should have asked you that you think is important to share? I just completely glanced over, did not ask, or I just missed, missed on. Well, you asked for my prediction. And in five years time, I think we will have another Chicago Cubs World Series victory. Um, <laughs> but we've got a lot of work to do in the interim. But no, your questions were great. And thank you so much for having me on with you today. Lee Shapiro, thank you so much for being with me. All right, folks, uh, thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate your support. I appreciate you uh, joining me on this episode. It was inspiring, amazing, wonderful. Lee, thank you for taking the time of your busy schedule and being with me on Healthcare Unfiltered. I am very grateful uh, to getting to know you. Uh, make sure you rate the show, subscribe the show, and write a brief review. By doing so, you certainly make the show easily searchable and more available and accessible to many of your friends and colleagues. I appreciate your support. Let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at, at Shadi Nabhan or by emailing me at shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote by Rumi. He once said, yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I am changing myself. Until next time, take care.